Well, I do invite you to pray with me one more time because as we continue our journey through the book of Romans, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not just tough material, it's the subject matter is tough because the Christian life is hard, that's why. And if you come in here this morning feeling a little beleaguered, a little tired, a little weary of just being a Christian, <laughs> uh, there's no just being a Christian about it. It is difficult. Let's ask the Lord's help, and I'm prayerful and hopeful that this text will put a charge in our step uh, this morning. Father, we do approach you, uh, many of us, most of us, probably all of us if we're honest, uh, weak and weary. Uh, we pray that you would use this passage to enliven us, to apply some balm to our wounds, to encourage us where we're discouraged. We ask for help, and we pray that we would get that from your word this morning and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, because we can't do it ourselves. So we lean on you for it, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little recap on last week. Okay, last week, last week, we talked about identity for the Christian, where Paul tells the Christian, there was a time where sin was the, the bully that you couldn't beat. Sin was always there right, waiting to pounce on you to take your lunch money. Uh, sin was always there waiting for you to exit the, the double doors out of your school and on your way home to, to beat you up. And you couldn't do anything about it. You didn't have power to do anything about it. It owned you. It was your slave master. And his encouragement to them was, but that's not you. That was true of you before, and it's not true of you now. But you remember one of the ways that that bully would beat up the person is through the use of the law. Okay, the rules, the do's and don'ts that God reveals, uh, Paul said they stimulate sin. So you might think of, a, I don't know, a time when you were growing up where you didn't think of doing that naughty thing until your parents said, don't do that naughty thing. It wasn't until your dad dangled the keys in front of your face and said, this is my prized, precious, classic car. And I know you're going to want to take a joyride with your friends, and I know you're going to think this is going to make you look really cool, but don't do it. That's my car. And it wasn't until that moment you thought, man, that'd be really cool if I drove around the neighborhood in that car. There is something about being exposed to the specifics of law of rules, of do's and don'ts, that makes the, the already sinful person kind of want to do it more. And so sin presses the attack by using the law as its billy club. This is what Satan did in the garden. He, he used the law. And the reason why God wants you to do, the reason why God said that is so that you, you wouldn't be like him. And see, sin is manipulating the law to deceive but Satan wouldn't have been able to do that if that law didn't exist. And so it's like the law is this constant cop pulling you over. And our temptation is to hate the rules, right? But Paul's saying, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with the rules. Actually, texting while you drive is actually dangerous. As much as it annoys you to get called out on it all the time, it's not the rule that's annoying. What's annoying is your penchant to keep doing it. But we do have that penchant. We lean into that lane. 
And so sin, arouses and stimula- uh, sin is aroused and stimulated by law in some respects. But there's another problem with the law. The more exposed you are to God's word and to what God says is right and to what God says is wrong, sin starts getting complex. What you used to understand as a simple thing about lying, okay, and we teach our kids this. In the first phase, kids realize that if something is, I did something, and I say I didn't do that something, that's a straight-up lie. So then kids start learning the complexity, right? I didn't say I didn't do it. I just didn't volunteer any extra information. I said I did X and Y. I never said I didn't do Z. And then the parent teaches, hopefully, that's still a form of lying. See, lying is a little more complex than you thought it was. They're getting exposed to more rule, more law, and the nuances of law. And now lying isn't just this. Lying is this. Oh, snap, and it's that. And it's this over here. And so sin becomes a bigger beast as the law keeps pointing out all the powerful aspects of sin. That doesn't make sin the bad guy, but sin keeps pointing it out. And sin uses the law to make it hard on us. We know this, some of us instinctually, when parents are tempted to lighten up the law so that less sin happens. Now, hopefully you don't do this, but you may have been tempted to do this. Maybe you made this mistake before, or you know some who have, or maybe your parents did this. You overhear your parents arguing in the kitchen, and one of them says, if we tell them this is a rule, they're just going to make them do it even more. If we tell them don't, you know, uh, do certain things before marriage, that's just going to incite them to do it more. So let's just not make that a rule, and at least let's allow it in the house so at least they don't have to go to motels. At least they don't have to go to back alleys. At least, they don't have to, at least it's within our house. Because the more you lay down the law, the more the child rebels. So let's relax the law so that the child has less to rebel against. Now that's stupid, but you understand the temptation of the parent because they're not completely wrong. The more rules you lay out for your kids, the more exasperating it is. It is exasperating. And so as Paul lays out in the previous chapter leading into chapter 7, he's like, look, that wasn't you anymore. Sin used to use the law to beat you up, but it doesn't have that same power anymore. It doesn't own you anymore where you were completely unresponsive to doing what was good. That's not you anymore as an identity. You belong to God now. God is your master. Now he's imagining someone in the audience, like you might be right now, going, but the law still beats me up. I still go home and do stuff, and I'm like, oh, that's wrong too, isn't it? Every time I come to church and I hear a sermon, I'm I'm exposed to a little bit more of what holiness looks like, which also exposes a little bit more as to what my unholiness looks like. And I feel like it, the, the Christian battle just keeps getting harder and more difficult. That doesn't sound right, Paul. You said that's not me anymore, but the law keeps, sin keeps using the law to pummel me. And so I'm in this battle. And you would think that Paul goes, well, then you're not a Christian. But Paul says the opposite. He goes, I know. Welcome to the fight. Welcome to the fight. He does that by first dealing with this role of the law because the Christian listener is going, well, then the law is a problem, isn't it? 
Because maybe we shouldn't come to church. Maybe we shouldn't hear so many sermons. Maybe we shouldn't learn more about Scripture. If the more we learn about Scripture, the harder it is to live into it. And he goes, no, 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 the problem is not the law. The law is good. Even though sin uses it as a weapon, it's good in your life. So we've completely missed what we're going to look at today. If we go home going, less devotionals, less sermons, less scripture, less time in God's word, let's know the law less. We've got it wrong if we think that. So he goes to challenge it. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. He's imagining this objection where somebody says, well, what, what, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? He goes, by no means. The law isn't sin. But he does want you to understand that sin uses the law. So I'm just going to read through verse 12, and then we'll back up and just make a couple comments on it. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now Paul's logic is really dense. So I'm going to try my best to walk us through it in a way where we don't lose track of the overarching argument here because the conclusion that you're supposed to walk away with is verse 12. Everything that he's saying here is, is helping you understand there's, it's not, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good and righteous and holy. It's a description of who God is, and God is good and righteous and holy. So how can something that describes who he is be anything different? And good and righteous and holy. No, it's, law is not the problem. The verses in between is him describing why it feels like the law is the problem. It's because the law is used by sin, seizing an opportunity, he says, taking that commandment and using it against us for disobedience. And so some people, as they look at this passage, they go, what is he talking about here? Is he talking about uh, the experience of every Christian, that every Christian at some point the law comes into your life and goes, ha, <laughs> you thought you were good, but actually this exposes that you were bad. Now you're dead. Or is he talking about his own experience? Some people say maybe when he was growing up, you know, when he was a kid and he first started learning the Jewish laws and that's when it dawned on him. I don't think so. Because in the, when he writes the Philippians, you remember in, in when he writes the Philippians, he told the Philippians, hey, back when I was a Pharisee, I was perfect, man. Nobody had anything against me. No one could hang with me with keeping the law. So he doesn't reflect back on his life as a law-keeping Jew as a time where he was constantly messing up. He thought he was constantly not messing up. I think it wasn't until Jesus intruded in his life and he really understood the law that he realized, I'm dead under the law. Some people say he's, he's not talking about himself personally, but he's, his I, uh, him, when he refers to himself as I, he's referring to the whole group of Israel, all of Israel. I mean, they were hanging out. I mean, they were slaves. 
They were slaves in Egypt, but when they were brought out, they got the law, and it wasn't until they got the law that they started dying. I mean, think about that. It was miserable in Egypt, but why do you think they wanted so badly to go back to Egypt? You remember, when we walked through, we, we've done Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in this church. And again and again and again, Israel longs to go back to Egypt. And you're like, why would they want to do that? Because in Egypt, we just had to smash the stuff down and put straw in it and make bricks and go home for the day. That's it. Out here in the wilderness is don't eat that. Eat this. Trust me here. Ten commandments that on, on the heels of which we have another 200 commandments. It wasn't until they were in the wilderness outside of Egypt that God judged them and killed a lot of them for disobedience. Once again, Exodus 20, God says, don't worship anyone else and don't create a graven image. What do they do? Exodus 34, Aaron, take all of our earrings, melt them into a golden calf and we'll worship it. It wasn't until Exodus 20 that you got Exodus 34. Law came in and exposed how deadly sin is. Some people think this is actually referring back to the garden. Because Paul says, I was alive. I was, I was alive. And then sin entered and death came. Well, that happened with Adam. We covered that a couple chapters ago. Adam was perfectly fine. And then God said, this one tree, don't eat. Eat all the other trees, you'll have life. Eat that tree, you'll have death. Then sin came in, twisted their understanding of the law, deceived their understanding of the law, and they did eat that one tree. So it wasn't until the law came that, that sin came. I think he's doing all of it. I think he's going back to the beginning and saying, this is what happened with Adam, and because this is what happened with Adam, this is what we saw happen with Israel, and because we saw this happen with Israel, this is how my story went, and because this is how my story went, that's how your story goes. The more we're exposed to God's law, the weightier a matter it becomes. And the more things get exposed. That's why church is oftentimes uncomfortable. If I only stood up here and just said, you go get it. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You're so awesome. Love you. You're awesome. Great. I'm sure there'd be a lot more people in here. But sometimes you come to church, hopefully sometimes, yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged, the grace of God, and, and God is here. But sometimes the word of God stings. It's like it does surgery. Now, who loves going to the dentist? Who loves going to the operating table? Who loves looking at their x-rays? Let's see what else is wrong today, doctor. You're kind of a little bit of a weirdo if you're like, oh, I love, I can't wait till I get my next scan. I want to see, ooh, let's see, what, what's, what's wrong with me today? Nobody likes that, but that's what the law does. It scans you, puts it up on this bright screen, and points out what's wrong. So the temptation is, let's stop going to the doctor. And Paul's like, there's nothing wrong with the doctor. A doctor that shows you what's wrong, that's a good doctor, actually. What's wrong is the tumor. What's wrong is the sin. What's wrong is the thing that makes you keep doing it. That's where the fight is. So don't retreat from the law. Don't study God's word less. It's good and it's holy and it's righteous. But you need to understand that it does make things harder, just like it did in the garden, just like it did at Sinai, just like it did in Paul's life, and just like it does in our own lives. 
Sin expands our knowledge, not definitionally. When Paul says, I didn't know what coveting was, he's not saying, I had no access to a dictionary. I couldn't look up covet. We didn't have dictionaries back in my day. It's not the definitional term. Of course, he knew what the word covet means. I think it's interesting that of all the commandments, he used covet. Covetousness is that last commandment in the Ten Commandments that sort of sums up all of it, doesn't it? Why do we actually murder and commit adultery and bear false witness against our neighbor? Why do we worship other things? It has to do with this interior part of ourselves that only that Tenth Commandment in the tables of the Ten Commandments exposes. All the other ones can be viewed from the outside. He killed that person. We caught that person committing adultery. You lied in front of everybody, and we found out it's not true, and everybody remembers you lied in front of everybody. You worshiped that golden calf in front of everybody. We saw you worship that golden calf. Can you really see somebody covet? Do you see how interior that is? You can covet hard, and nobody next to you knows it. And so he uses that command that really invades all the other commands. When Adam and Eve bit that fruit, they were coveting. The irony is they were coveting God because Satan said, if you bite that fruit, you will be like God, and God just doesn't want you to step up to his level. Bite that fruit, get up to his level. He doesn't have to be above you. You can rise to his level. You can know the things that he knows. What is that tapping into but the covetousness of someone's heart? So Paul's not saying, I didn't know what the word meant, covet. He was a Pharisee. He knew what the word covet meant, but he didn't know it like a Christian knows it. Where we can sense it's not just what other people can observe from the outside. There's something inside of me that wants something that I shouldn't want. Covetousness. So law doesn't just give us definitions. It exposes even to the core of our being what God really is like and what we're really like in contrast. And then when he tells us that sin lies dead at the end of verse 8, apart from the law, sin lies dead, we've already covered that he cannot mean that if there's no law, it's impossible to sin because he already told us in the Romans that there's people out there who don't have exposure to Scripture, and they sin too. So he's not saying sin doesn't exist. What he means by sin lying dead versus being made alive is the quickening of sin, the enlivening of sin, giving sin vigor and power and strength to dominate. The law gives it that. The law gives sin the juice to be more powerful <clears throat> than ever. So it's not that sin doesn't exist if there isn't a law. It's just that it's exposed, heightened, deepened, made to be seen as more profound. We see how complex and how it gets its tentacles and everything. Just like a little kid learning what a lie really is. And so Paul's trying to tell them, hey, look, I don't want you to... to forsake what God says and doesn't, you know, what he says are, is right and not right because the law is not sin. Verse 12, it's holy and it's righteous and it's good. We don't need less of it. It's good. We need more of it. But sin gains power through it, like he says in verses 9 through 11. 
when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I'm the one pinned. I'm the one underpowered. And the very commandment that promised life, all throughout Scripture, God says, follow, follow these rules and, and you'll live. You'll be with me and you'll live. Covenant contains rules ever since the garden. But rather than getting life, we get death because we struggle underneath it. That's always what's happened in the past. And the law is good. But even though the law is good, it's used by sin. There's the, there's the difficulty. Now, this is what Paul makes clear going forward. <clears throat> that sin makes us weak through the law. Okay, that's what he established here. But then he wants us to know that the law is good because it shows us how we're getting beat up. When you're in that doctor's office, the doctor's not just going, here's something wrong in the scan. Sorry, go home. It's here's something wrong with the scan, and because we see where it is, now we know what to do. Because the law points out where something is wrong, we could tuck our tail and be like, I guess there's things wrong with me. I give up. You could do that, but that's not what Paul wants from us. We just came out of the chapter that said, don't let it do that. That was you before. All you could do was tuck your tail and just get beat down. But now you're using the law to expose where it is that you're getting beat up. And we see that in verses 13 to 25. In verses 13 to 25. Look at verse 13. It's kind of a transition. Asking another question. Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? No, the law isn't what brought death. The tumor is what brought The x-ray didn't bring death. The tumor that the x-ray is exposing, that's what brings death. It's sin. By no means, he says. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. See, it's demonstrated to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We talked about that because as we learn about God's laws, we understand, we're instructed as to what sin is. And sin sometimes increases in our lives because of it. Or we see its increase in our lives because the law is pointing it out. That's the function of the two. And now he talks about our battle in some bleak terms. I'm going to read 14 through 25, and I want you to see the struggle here. I want you to see that Paul, in the last chapter, did not mean, hey, sin used to beat you up, sin was your slave master, and now it doesn't exist in your life anymore. Now you don't have to deal with it anymore. Now when you get out of school, there are no bullies. Now there's nobody to take your lunch money. It doesn't exist. That's not what he's saying. He's saying now when you see that bully, you have a different perspective. He doesn't own you anymore. He didn't say he didn't exist. That's why these verses are here. So look, Let's look at 14 through 25. We'll read it in one shot. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that what I want to do, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my body. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's enough here to unpack for days. I'll try to make some quick work of it just to orient us to what he's really saying here because it's such a bleak picture it seems so defeatist. I want to do good, but I constantly keep doing bad. I know what God's law says, and I like what God's law says. It's good. But then when I go to do it, I actually miss the bar, and I actually do something else. And the thing I want to do is what I don't want to do, and the thing that I hate, I hate it when I do that. I keep doing that. I'm a wretched person. Now, it's so bleak a picture, some have concluded Paul cannot be talking about the Christian's life. That's impossible. He just said sin can't own you anymore. He just said that's not you anymore. So how can he talk about sin keeps beating me up. I want to do it, but I don't, and I'm, I'm torn. How can he possibly be talking about the Christian life? Some have even taken this as a way to confirm that the Christian life should be a perfect life, that you should be able to reach perfection. And if you're still getting jumped and pounced on by sin, maybe, you, maybe you're not a Christian. I think that's an abuse of this passage based on a misunderstanding of this passage that's dangerous. Many of us instinctively feel Paul's battle. And we're like, yeah, man, that's me. And I think that's what Paul's trying to do. He's like, I'm, I'm not above you. I'm telling you about the law, and I'm telling you that's not you anymore. And some of you are like, but sometimes it does feel like it's me. And he's trying to go, I know it feels like that sometimes. It feels like that for me too. This is a place where the parent sits next to the kid instead of just above the kid and just says, hey, I struggle with stuff too. If you do that all the time, the kid will just be like, well, then why are you my parent? <laughs> you don't ever do anything right. Why, I feel like that as a pastor. If I over-confess from the pulpit, you know, why am I pastoring? But if I never confess, if I never share that I, you know, share my battles and struggles, I'm fake to you. And that would be a proper conclusion. You would only see a facade of Lucas. You wouldn't see the real Lucas. That's why many of us are extroverts on Facebook where we can filter our images and then we're introverts in person because we don't want people to see the real us. Paul's peeling back the curtain. Look, this is the real me. Because I know where you're at. I told you that's not you anymore. And you're thinking, man, but it feels like it's me. I know that. Because I feel that too. So I'm going to give you some reasons why I think Paul is talking about the Christian life. Even though it feels like, man, it sounds like the opposite of what he was saying before. He's using harsh language, stark imagery. But he is 
I believe, talking about the Christian life to encourage us that this is a, a battle that we're supposed to wage. Here's the first reason why. Because I think what Paul means here is that there's a part of the person that has yet to be fully delivered from sin. Back to my illustration about the bully. Paul's not saying the bully doesn't exist. He's saying you can do something about the bully now. But after school, the bully doesn't go away. The bully's still there to take your money. The bully's still there to make it hard for you to get home. Paul didn't say that went away. That's still there. And this passage is talking about the fact that sin still lingers. It's not like you give your life to Christ, you get dunked in water, and as soon as you come out of the water, you're like, not a selfish thought in my mind. Not a hint of covetousness in my heart, ever. Wow. You know that's not true. Paul knows that to be true. But in this passage, he's talking about that lingering part of us that's still inside of us that is not the bully that it was because it doesn't own us with our inability to do anything about it, but that it's still present and that the Christian life is a fight. You cannot be a lazy Christian because it takes energy and focus to get through this, this bleak picture of this battle that he describes. The other reason why I think this, he's talking about the Christian life is because every time Paul talks about unbelievers, he describes them as being in the flesh. Here, he's talking about being of the flesh. Now, sometimes prepositions don't really matter that much. In, on, under, with before, meh, and we interchange them all the time, but sometimes, some sentences, just a change of preposition makes a big difference. Now, if you look at other passages where Paul is clearly talking about unbelievers, he says they're in the flesh, but there's places where he talks about the believers struggle with the flesh, he says of the flesh. I think that's a big difference. Flesh doesn't define you, flesh doesn't own you, but you'd be silly to think you don't have flesh at all, you don't have temptations at all, you never give in to temptation. There's still something there nagging, that old person trying to resurrect and be, and, and be your identity again. That's why we needed last week's sermon. Because we're tempted to be overcome by what we were. If we weren't, you wouldn't need last week's sermon, meaning you wouldn't need last week's passage. But we need those passages to remind us that's not you anymore. Because when we're not reminded of that, there's still that lingering bully that hasn't completely disappeared yet. Another reason is because when you look at this passage, he talks about this duality inside of a person, this battle inside of a person that I don't think an unbeliever has. One person told me uh, that I was witnessing to once not too long ago, said, it's real convenient for you to be a Christian, isn't it? All the answers, oh, God, God, trust, trust God, he takes care of everything. I was like, really? You live the convenient life, friend. You could do whatever you want. What's to say you can't do? Go cheat on your wife right now. The only problem with this is you'd get caught, not because it's actually wrong. Who's to tell you it's wrong? Kill somebody next time you're mad at them. Live according to your impulses and desires. You don't have rules. You don't have laws except for the laws that might get you caught and make things inconvenient for you. But whether it's the law of the land or not, I have a law binding my conscience because God said so, and I have to live according to that. That's convenient. I have to live against the grain of the culture constantly. The culture celebrates your life, man. 
This battle that he's talking about is inconvenient because he's a Christian. If he weren't a Christian, who cares? This duality that he talks about in verse 17, he says it's no longer me, but something in me, right? And so in verse 17, he says, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There's a part of me that, that wants to do it, but that's not me. That's in keeping with what he said before. It's not my whole identity, but there's a part of me that still wants to do it. That's sin dwelling within me. If you drop down to verse 20, now if I do what I do not want to do, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's still me, but it's something that dwells inside of me. It's like this sickness that I've been cured from in the end, but it hasn't been completely radiated, eradicated yet. It's still some lingering thing. Now, it's getting smaller when we look at the x-rays, and that's great. I'm gaining power over it, but the battle's not done yet. There's still something that lingers in me that makes me do things I don't want to do. The unbeliever doesn't have that battle. In verse 18, I think this is key to the entire thing. Look at verse 18 there. Thank God for this moment of clarity. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. People go, look, see, right there. How can he be a Christian? He said, nothing good dwells in him. I go, continue reading the verse. That is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells in that fleshly part of me. There's another part of me that wants to do good, but the part that doesn't want to do good, that's the part I'm talking about here. Paul's not saying nothing good dwells in the Christian. He's saying there's still a part of the Christian where there's, that's, that's not good. And we all know that to be true. The rest of Scripture confirms that as well. Only Jesus didn't have this uh, fleshly part of him. And then verse, uh, again in verse 18, look what, the reason why he doesn't have the ability. People say, look, he says nothing good dwells in him, and then he says he doesn't have the ability to fight the bully. He says it right there. And it's like, no, no, no. He doesn't have the ability to fight the bully in the flesh. That's why, spoiler alert, chapter 8 says what, the way you fight is in the Spirit, capital S, because you can't do it yourself. There's a part of me, there's something that indwells me that pulls me towards sin. Chapter 8, someone indwells me that gives me what I need to conquer that thing that still dwells in me. Man, that's awesome. And this entire time, I'm like, I cannot wait for chapter 8. <laughs> we'll get there. We're going to put a, a, a verse up here in just a second, but one more thing before we do that is verses 22 to 23. Look at verses 22 to 23. Here's that duality inside of, of a Christian. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. See, there's a part of me that delights in the law of God. Do you ever feel that duality? Sometimes you're like, man, I really want to drink scripture. And other days you're like, ugh, read the Bible. Yeah, you know, there's the duality. He's saying, in my inner being, I delight in the law of God. And then verse 23, he says, but I see in my members, in other words, in my body, another part of me, kind of the outside part of me, that doesn't want that. It's another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So throughout this, he's got the spirit against, the, against sin or spirit against flesh. Here it's his mind or his inner being against his body or his flesh. That's the battle that is specific to a Christian. 
because non-Christians don't have that good part. Their identity is still uh, their slave to sin. And then we see in Galatians chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, we'll just put it up here real quick. I just want this to encourage you. Paul, when Paul writes to Galatians, what does he tell them? Walk by the Spirit, that's Romans 8, we'll get there next, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now who is he writing here? He's writing Christians, the believers that live in Galatia. Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I mean, he's telling the Galatians, basically he's giving the Galatians a, a quick synopsis of Romans 7. We would be foolish to think that all we need to do is say a prayer, confess Christ, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, and then we're perfect from that point on. That's, that's not true. Paul longs for an ultimate deliverance. Here's the last point I'm going to make about this. He longs for an ultimate deliverance. When he cries out in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And when he says that God is going to deliver him from this body of death, Frequently throughout Paul's writing, Paul talks about deliverance as something that's still coming for the Christian. <laughs> this is why when we took communion, Jesus emphasized twice in Luke 22, you're going to be taking this communion until I fully bring in the kingdom. Now, the disciples right there could have been like, you just said you, said you brought the kingdom. He's like, I know, but I'm bringing the kingdom. Well, which one is it? Yes. The kingdom has started. It's not fully here yet. The kingdom is unraveling. It's not done unraveling yet. Right? And so Paul uses deliverance or salvation as something that has happened in the past. Other verses, he's talking about deliverance or salvation as something that's continuing to happen now. We're continuing to be uh, rescued from sin. But there's an ultimate time in the future where we'll be completely delivered from this battle with sin. And that fleshly part of us won't indwell us anymore. We call that glorification. And we'll get to some of those passages as well in this book. But here's how he ends it. Now, this is very interesting. If he was talking about non-Christians saying, wretched man, the non-Christian, who's going to deliver the non-Christian from constantly sinning all the time? Praise be to God, he provides Jesus Christ, period. Move on to the next thing. But look what he does. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 24. Verse 25 is the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how we'll be delivered. And then look at the end of verse 25, he returns to it. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he leaves off with the battle. So he doesn't leave off with, but I got saved. I became a Christian. And thanks be to God, this isn't a struggle for me anymore. So Romans, you know, believers in Rome, catch up. You know, catch up to my speed. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's saying, thanks be to God, I will be delivered. But for now... It's a fight. It's a fight. And that doesn't make you a weak Christian. That doesn't make you a puny Christian. It just means you're a Christian. And oftentimes when people tell me, I, I struggle with this. Am I really a Christian? I struggle with this and I struggle with that. And I'm like, see that word struggle? If you weren't a Christian, would it really be a struggle? You care. Because you delight in God's law. You don't look at God's law like, ugh, get off me. You look at God's law like, I want that. 
I want to lead that blessed life of Psalm 1. I don't want to be with the scoffers. I don't want to be with the wicked. I don't want to take counsel with them. I love your counsel. I love your word. But I don't always do it. I don't always do it. Sometimes I do the opposite. I hate that. See, would you hate that? If you weren't a believer, you hate it because you're a believer. So your feeling weary from a battle shouldn't discourage you. Ironically, it should encourage you. Because the fact that you're in the fight means you've been rescued. The fact that the wilderness hard is hard means that you've been brought out of Egypt. And you're not a slave anymore. Now the journey's not over. We're not in the promised land yet. But the fact that we get to do this journey, and it's hard to eat the manna every day. Sometimes we want something else besides God's word. Even though scripture tells us manna tasted quite good for them. I want something else. I want meat. We're going to have our struggles. But the fact that we're struggling means we're in this journey. And that's good. So Paul, here's what Paul does not want them. Paul does not want them to give up on the law. He doesn't want them to go to church less. He doesn't want them to read the Bible less. Because the less I know, the less I know, the less sin, I don't want to hear about it. The Christian posture is, tell me what I need to know. Tell me what's wrong in my life. And I'm going to trust that even though in my flesh I'm unable to overcome it, you're going to give me what I need to overcome it. And he will. That's chapter 8. Spend time in it this week. But let chapter 7 sit first. If we push the chapter 8 too fast, if it went from chapter 6 to chapter 8, you'd be like, oh, that's not me anymore. Oh, the spirit, this victorious life. We would have this fake facade of the Christian life. Constant victory, constant floating on clouds. Nothing really bothers you. Nothing really nags at you. You're either stuck in Romans 6 or free in Romans 8. The purpose of chapter 7 is to help you understand, no, 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 no. Sin does happen in the Christian life. That doesn't excuse it. We shouldn't celebrate it. We shouldn't go to lunch right after service like, oh, let me, exp- let me tell you the sins I'm struggling with. And we're just celebrating the things that we're struggling with. No, because we delight in the law of God. We don't delight in the sin. But the purpose of chapter 7 is to encourage you that there is this middle piece here where the pastor, the elders, the Apostle Paul himself struggled with this duality inside of ourselves. And we're still trying to kill Mr. Hyde. Now eventually that battle won't be there anymore, but right now the battle's there and it's real. And we lean into each other for accountability and confession and help. We build one another up. Galatians 5 eventually turns into Galatians 6. When you catch someone that fell on the trespass, bear one another up. Bear one another's burdens. Not talking about rent a U-Haul to help your brother move their luggage burdens. He's talking about the burden of sin. And we do that for one another. And the first step in that direction is recognizing we have this fight. None of us is perfect. And if any of us said, I don't have this fight, that's a problem. But we do. And thanks be to God, he is, has, and will deliver us from this body of death. Let's pray. Fathers, we take a few moments now to uh, close in a song of worship. Uh, We ask that you would give us encouragement by your Holy Spirit to continue to wage war that the inner part of our being that loves you and that loves your word would grow and mature and increase. 
and that the fleshly part of us that still enjoys sin, that still wants to do the wrong thing, Lord, that that would decrease and become smaller. We pray that every time we're confronted with uh, the power of sin, that we would gain power over it and do what Cain couldn't do, master it, even though it wants to rule over us. Thanks be to God that you've provided Jesus Christ our Lord so we can live each day into that victory as we look ahead to the final time where we are fully delivered from sin, Father. As we sing this song, Lord, put our attention on Christ. Put our attention on his glory, uh, on his power and what he's done on our behalf so that we can experience victory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.